Hello, welcome again to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us. And uh, we are back in a pub, and we've just ordered stuff. And so we are, you know, eagerly anticipating tastiness and deliciousness and all kinds of stuff. Anyway, I'm C.R. Wiley. I am a pastor, and I've been all sorts of other things, including a uh, professor of philosophy. I've written books, and... uh, I'm one of the guys who hosts this show, the Theology Podcast, but I'm not the only guy. So uh, why don't we kick it over to you, Tom, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Tom Price, systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, teaching both at a variety of places, one of which is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Okay, great. And we've got another host. So Glenn, tell us about yourself, and also tell us about your book. Yeah. I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm professor of history at Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And by the time this is out, I think my book, Slaying Leviathan, will have been shipped and will be available. All right. There's been a huge response to that. I've noticed, at least on Facebook, everybody's tremendously excited. I saw the the email that went out from Canon Press to kind of prime the, the pump, so to speak. So I... I anticipate great things. I anticipate well, great things. If you haven't ordered it, feel free. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So Glenn's got that coming up. Now you've got a you've got a class, Tom. You're that, still still working on filling, right? That's right. And maybe by the time this comes out, it it sh- you know it will hopefully um, been filled. But it is a class on theology and culture. Um, it's looking at so it's looking at you know the the fundamentals and theological analysis of trends that are impacting culture and the church. And so in, in a lot of ways, it's taking what we do here on the podcast and kind of concentrating this kind of, uh, you know, uh, work on some key ideas that have impacted, you know, um, culture and then looking at ways in which uh, we go after the gods of our age. And all right. That, that particularly will be interesting to, I think, a lot of folks. So sign up for that and you can find out about it and sign up for it at the Fight, Laugh, Feast website. Anyway, so Glenn, it's your day. Tell us about what we're talking about. Well, we're going to take kind of a roundabout route to get to what I really want to talk about. But (laughs) where we're going to start is with the issue of memory. Mm What did you say? I can't remember. (laughs) Yeah, well... um, That's the last time I'll do that. Yes, thank you very much. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the issue of memory and the different ways different cultures think about it. Uh So, for example, if you go to a number of Native American tribes, they never will write down their myths, their legends, their stories, their history, those sorts of things. And the reason for... I found out about this because there was a... um, a park ranger out in Glacier National Park who was actually brought in by the tribal elder there and he was given, they went out into the wilderness and he was given the tribe's cultural history and everything else. He became the repository of memory for the tribe. And he said, why are you picking me? And the answer was because none of the young people are interested. Oh, what a shame. Hmm. And he said, well, you know, can I write this down? They said, absolutely not. He said, well, what if I die before I pass it on? They said, you are a wise man. You will do it. You will know. You will know in time, and you will find someone. You know what this reminds me of. Is you remember Roots? Mm-hmm. Remember uh, the search for Kuta Kente? Mm-hmm. You know, Alex Haley goes to Africa, and he has to listen to the 
the genealogy of the tribe, and he's yep. trying to find Kunta Kinte because he knows he's been, you know, he's descended from Kunta right. Kinte. And the the reason why they don't want it written down is because, according to them, when you write something down, it dies. It Plato is, said something similar. It <laughs> is only alive if it is kept in your living memory. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you go to, the, the Native Americans aren't the only ones who believe that. If you go to the Celts, we know very, very little about ancient Celtic religion. We know very little about the, what the Druids really did yeah. because they never wrote anything down, presumably for the same reason, because they believed that if you write it down, it starts to die. It's only when it is maintained, as I said, in living memory and passed on orally and so on that it still has life to it. Yeah, yeah. Now... In contrast to that, there are other cultures that really believe you, you must record things because it's the only way you remember. Yeah. And so if you look, for example, at scripture, one of the things that's really striking, if you pay attention to it as you go through the Old Testament, is how many times God says, put up a heap of stones here so that when your children ask, what's this heap of stones here for? You can tell them about this. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, well, there, there are multiple versions of that out there. But it applies not just to physical objects. It also applies, if you will, to time. So every year, the Jewish world had their festivals. The Hebrew world had their festivals where every year they would re-remember almost relive the Passover. Yeah. And they, they would, why is this night like every other night? Or not like every other not night. Not like every other right, night. Right. Why is this night <laughs> not like every other night? Yeah, I'll have another beer. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, just so folks know, this is our second show of the day. <laughs> right, yeah. So, and I am a lightweight. Um, so, but, but, but what they're doing is they're rehearsing the critical moment in their history, and they are doing it because God told them to do it. Right. At, at, at the Feast of Sukkoth, the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Trumpets, it's all right, the same right, thing. Right. What are they doing? They're remembering and reenacting yeah, yeah. the experience in the wilderness where they set up these, these tents, these booths, tabernacles, whatever you want to call them, right. on their roofs. And they live in those rather than in the houses to remind them of their history. This is interesting because, you know, what comes to mind immediately for me is reenactors. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, like you got all these Civil War reenactors, which is a huge deal, particularly with Southern guys. Right. <laughs> uh, but uh, here in the North, there are other places, you know, we've got like living museums, like, you know, mm -hmm. Sturbridge Village. Right. So like my daughter worked there one summer and uh, she learned how to do all sorts of things in the way that people in the early 19th century did. And then she would... Just describe it to people, and then you had to stay in character. You know, people, you would be in costume, and you'd have to stay in character, and people would come up to you and, and want to know what you're doing, and so my daughter would describe what she was working on. I think it's sometimes, I think it was candle making and just different things. But anyway, this is fascinating. But the, the, act, the act of doing something related to memory, I think, is what I'm getting at. And right. I, I, I'll never forget, um, it's, it's especially after my time, I mean, one of the things I, I really appreciated my time studying under Jeffrey Wainwright at Duke, who was a liturgist, you know, in the, in the Protestant world of all things. He wrote a, a the, systematic theology on doxology. One of the things he taught me um, about what you're talking about is in the way in which Christian participation in the liturgical year 
um, is sort of a, a reduplicating of this. But but one of the things he, he was talking about um, was the way in which time worked in that. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get ahead of myself, but I encountered it in one way when I was attending a very beautiful Lutheran church who had a um, a nativity scene. Um, and, and what they did is they had the live nativity right in front of a roadway um, for an evening, like an even song around the holidays on Advent. And one of the things for the first time I caught was the way in which time came together in memory, repetition, and also the current world that we were in, all tied together in a moment. And you could see here a living witness to something that happened a long time ago right by a roadway where cars are going down the road and you as a believer participating in both aspects of reality. And in some way, you're getting a glimpse of what, what is significant about this, the way in which the past um, is a stepping stone and something that never is lost sight of even when fulfillment comes later. But anyway, that's, you know. Yeah. And, and you're, you're anticipating where I'm heading okay, with this yeah. in, in, in some, <laughs> some, some pretty direct ways. So let, let's take a look, though, back at the Old Testament. What happens after you get through the law? Well, it turns out that there are other festivals that are added. So Purim, for example, uh, after Esther. Which, right. is, which is a very fun celebration. And yes. you are commanded to get drunk, by yes. the way. Yes, the, <laughs> so the, 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 tra- the tradition in Purim. We got, a, we got stuff arriving here. Uh-oh. Is that for me? The I think that's, yeah. that's me, and yep. The all right, all right. Yeah. For, the, for those of you who don't know, the tradition in Purim is to drink <laughs> enough so that this, the phrases bless Mordecai and curse Haman sound the same to you. And, and let me give you a hint here. They're no more similar in Hebrew than they are in English. And, and what is funny is they also dress in costume on this night. I remember attending one of the services in Oxford, actually, and someone was dressed as a nun. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it there. Oh. Well, it, it, so he was, she was uh, dressed as Joshua's father? Um, anyway, uh, now the, the more interesting one in a lot of ways to me is something known as the Feast of Dedication. And if you read in the Gospel of John, you will note that Jesus celebrates the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. Now, what the Feast of Dedication is for us today, we know it as Hanukkah. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing that's particularly interesting about that, and this, yes, I'm talking to you Reformed guys out there. <laughs> the thing that's interesting about this is that Han- celebration of Hanukkah is nowhere commanded in Scripture. Right. So, this raises some interesting questions about things like, oh, say, the regulative principle. Right. Now, if Jesus himself is celebrating a feast that isn't commanded, but that is very definitely a religious feast with all kinds of religious activities and practices attached to it, it suggests that there is some... And, and by the way, what is Hanukkah celebrating? For those of you who don't know, right. during the intertestamental period, a, one of Alexander the Great's generals um, took over in Syria. His name was uh, Seleucus. His descendant, Antiochus IV, hmm. desecrated the temple. He yeah. sacrificed a pig on the altar and put up a statue of Zeus to it. Nasty, nasty dude, too. Nasty. nasty. 
Um, and so the Maccabees ro- rose up in revolt. They cleansed the temple, and they were going to rededicate it. But they did not have enough oil to keep the lamp lit for more than one night. And so they had to send to get oil. And uh, according to the, the documents we have from the period, the oil miraculously lasted through the seven extra days it took for it to get there. Now, I remember as a kid, I had a lot of Jewish friends. Mm-hmm. So I lived in St. Louis and my father was, uh, you know, he worked for Washington U- University in St. Louis. So we were in this sort of uh, intellectual bohemian environment, and um, all my friends were Jewish. And, and Hanukkah, I think, took on sort of added significance as the alternative to Christmas for Jews. Yeah. So like in, within you know, the Jewish calendar, Hanukkah is like a second-tier holiday. Right. It's not first-tier. But because Christians had this big deal called Christmas... A lot was made of Hanukkah. Yeah, the dreidel. And all, yeah. Oh, yeah, dreidel, dreidel. I remember hearing dreidels. I remember that. And, but uh, the thing about that, of course, is, that, is the Jewish kids would brag, we get presents for it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you get presents one day, yes. well, we get presents for more than one day. Anyway. Well, for my purposes, the thing that's significant about the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah it isn't what the Jewish kids told me when I was little? <laughs> <laughs> well, I grew up in a neighborhood with a lot of Jewish kids, too, and we used to regularly compare the two holidays as well. <laughs> and we even came up with things like Hanukkah bushes and uh, the equivalent of Santa Claus was Hanukkah Harry. Um, um, it was all good fun. Nobody was really mocking anybody. It was sure. just, you know. Sure. But, but in any event... For my purpose today, the thing that's important about that is memory. Mm-hmm. What the Feast of Dedication is, it's a reminder of God's ongoing care for the Jewish people, right. God's ongoing care for proper worship of himself, and this miraculous event that to the Jews ratified their struggle against Antiochus. Right. And, and, I mean, something that gets missed, and I don't want to run down this trail long, but it's something even our last show hinted on, is, is that you can have, I mean, what you get here is, is the genuine meaningfulness of history without having to become historicist. Right. Is, is, is you can see that, that um, history is a vehicle for the manifestation of the eternal attributes of God and their, um, their enactment towards a people in covenant fidelity, um, the, the fulfillment of cre- creation's purposes and all the like. So what you get is this very powerful understanding of history which the, the, the pagan world, the philosophical world um, had no parallel to and even the talk of sort of the eternal and the historical um, um, that the, 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 the you know you may, may with Plato get something you know you do some work with but it's nothing like what Christianity brought to that and actually I, I was reading Mariton lately who has a philosophy of history who draws on um, that deep significance that Christianity brings to the historical without having to move into historicism. 
because of this this notion of God's fidelity and character revealed in its covenant history with humanity. Right. Yeah, and even more simply, that time is not circular; it's yeah. linear. Linear. That you know, with, with most of the pagan world, they had the circular conception of time that. Yeah. What was will be again. What is was before. Yeah. Um, in Judaism and Christianity, you have a very different sense. You have a sense of history moving in a trajectory, in a specific direction, and things change. There are new things that happen. Yeah. God's covenant remains eternal, but but history itself is significant. History itself is important. Um, that one of the things, one of the most important things, arguably, from the perspective of uh, comparative religion, one of the most significant differences of Christianity to any other religion out there, except Judaism or Islam, the Abrahamic religions, is that it is tied very directly to specific historical events, specific historical people, in a specific historical time and place. The core story of Christianity doesn't occur in some amorphous God time, <clears throat> this undefined period sometime in the, yeah. the unknown past. It occurs in space and time. It occurs in history. Yeah. And it occurs in a real place. All of these kinds of things. I think one of the things about Christianity is we have this uh, compatious faith that's able to affirm the transcendent and unchanging, and the historical and the contingent yeah. at the same time. So um, we can say that there is progress in history as God providentially orders it to his glory. And at the same time, we can say that there's a kind of waxing and waning of cultures in the process. Some do come mm -hmm. closer to the ideals, yeah. others, and, and then later uh, depart from them. So, you know, we don't, we, it's, it's not like, um, it's merely kind of the same thing over and over again, like we see with the, you know, with Greek philosophy, but it's not historicism either. That's right. Without an eternal uh, point of reference. Yep. You, you could almost say that with Christianity, you can, you can be Platonist and Aristotelian without having to be Platonist or Aristotelian. Yeah, right. There, there is a way in which the eternal and the particular, the the eternal and the historical, are are affirmed as full as Plato and Aristotle wanted to say it, without having to get into the conflict. Now, Christians are always trying to work out the best way to express that, oh. um, but it's it's I think you know Scripture, of course, expresses it in the best way. <laughs> um, this living historical manifestation of the eternal God and covenant relation with creation. Right. And, um, and, and I think that, that you know, but I, I do think there is a temptation. There has been a temptation in the church to, to sometimes move it towards the, the um, hyper-philosophical and make it wholly otherworldly, and then the other side to be a historicist interpretation. And there is this constant pull, and I think Glenn's point here is great, is that I think the liturgical and the historical in the full biblical sense are the best reality manifestations. I think that the liturgical truth is the best reality manifestation of holding those things together. Yeah, and you know, 
as we've been talking about historicism, I'm reminded of probably the best quote that I have uh, on historicism, uh, which comes from the great philosopher of history, Mark Twain. (laughs) Uh, History is just one damn thing after another. Um, But except it isn't. History is purposeful. It is moving in a direction. And, but here, here's the thing. As we're thinking about history moving in a direction, we also have to mark the, as did the Israelites, the great works of God in redemption. That was commanded with the Passover. It was commanded by the, in the Feast of Booths. It was recorded in scripture in Esther with Purim. Hmm. It was not recorded in scripture with the Feast of Dedication, hmm. but nonetheless, the pattern that you need to commemorate the great works of God in history is something that was well-established within Judaism, and Jesus himself affirmed by participating in those. And, and, and you think, I don't want to interrupt your flow here, but you think of baptism and, and the Eucharist of the Lord's Supper. I mean, you have two moments where... That very thing comes to, uh, I think, concretion. Um, I mean, what, what, what is being baptized? You're baptized into Christ, right? right? And into his, his work historically <laughs> right. on your behalf, even though you're, you know, you're in the now. Let's say you're getting baptized tomorrow, right? What are you being baptized into? A mere, a mere reflection back? No. You, there is something more going on to the event of Christ, which is not only of, of contingent significance, but it has an, a, a, a sort of eternal weight. And that eternal weight, although historical and connected to you as a historical creaturely being, has the capacity to, to you, for you to participate in now, not merely by saying, okay, what I'm going through in baptism is, is just a remembering of what happened in history, but it's an actual participation in the work of Christ. What are the, what is the command to celebrate the Eucharist? What are the words? Yeah, this do in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me, right. Yeah. Memory continues to be important and we need to continue to recognize and celebrate the works of God in history, which is fundamentally what the liturgical year is about. Yeah, yeah. You know, it starts, let's, let's just walk through it briefly. Mm-hmm. It starts with Advent in the West, four Sundays before Christmas. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> Advent is a time of, well, remembering, but not only remembering, anticipating. Right. We think back to... Well, think about the fact that the first Sunday in Advent, we're supposed to think about the second coming. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. We think back to the, the, um, the period where the Jews were waiting for the coming of the Messiah, so we look back and we're, the focus is on prophecy throughout. But we're also looking ahead to the second coming. We are putting ourselves simultaneously in two places in history. The place of the Jews waiting and longing for the coming of the Messiah. And that connects in with us waiting and longing for the Messiah's return. <clears throat> then you get the Feast of Nativity, um, which is, of course, Christmas. And again, I'll deal with this with the Western calendar because the Eastern calendar is a little bit different. The nativity is one of these things that we often, I think, think about primarily in terms of children's stories and things like that. 
this is the most astonishing thing in history. Think about this. The eternal God, the source and origin of all things, acquires something he never had before in the incarnation, which is the human nature. And that human nature is now fused, if you can use that kind of language, to God, and God will never not be without, will never not have a human nature. This comes out actually in a surprising place, and that's in the Space Trilogy with uh, C.S. Lewis. Right. In, in Paralandra, <laughs> they reflect on this quite a bit. Right, right. So just to bring people up to speed on what I'm getting at, you know, in the first book, Out of the Silent Planet, it's a trip to Mars. You know, Ransom, the hero in the story, goes to Mars. And he, read, and he meets these very uh, unhuman-like creatures who are intelligent, and he's taken with them, learns their languages, and so forth. Well, later on, in the second book, he go, Paralandra, he goes to Venus, and he's disappointed to discover that the, that the intelligent creatures there look just like him, but they're green. <laughs> in other words, the human, you know, this human woman, human, human male... And that is brought out, and it comes to the surface that, that uh, in the future there's going to be this, the, the fact that, that God took on our form and has changed everything. Changed everything. And just All for, new species are going to look like us. Right? And, and just for our Lutherans out there, it's united but not mixed. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only kidding. Um, no. So... If we are going to follow the pattern that God established in the Old Testament, then we've got to say the Puritans got it wrong. We need to celebrate Christmas. Mm -hmm. Okay, the Puritans believed that because God commanded that we worship him on the Sabbath and that had gotten shifted to the Lord's Day, that that was the only day you ought to worship because if you had special holidays that only came up once a year, those would be viewed as being more special than the Sabbath that God actually commanded. Glenn, there's an interesting point. I want to cut off your flow of thought again. But the, the boldness of Christianity, I mean, I mean, Puritans would probably argue Christianity didn't wean itself off enough of paganism. Um, but the boldness of Christianity to redefine the calendar in light of Christ and the liturgical order in light of Christ, A, but not fully wean it from everything about pagan culture. Um, what, you know, I mean, think, of, think of even now the, the terms we use for Monday, Tuesday, sure. Wednesday. We're not using Nissan. We're not using right. the, the Hebraic. So, I mean, this is something that, that um, you know, that I think that, that kind of radical Puritanism, if you will, um, always kind of found itself in an odd kind of relationship to. Whereas as Christianity didn't find itself so um, conflictual. Um, wasn't, wasn't, it the pilgrims that, wasn't it the pilgrims that limited themselves to the vocabulary of the Bible? Do, do I have that right? It's definitely groups that did. I don't yeah, remember if it was... I don't remember if the pilgrims did. Yeah, but yeah. But the problem it, with that, you're on the wrong side of the Atlantic for me. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I, I understand the sentiment of biblicism in that way, but it turns it, it, turns it into something that, that Scripture itself doesn't teach about itself. But, that's, but that, I guess that's what I'm getting at. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's actually just functionally impossible. 
Okay, we just had a momentary glitch, but the, the question that came up was, what do you do with groups, possibly the pilgrims, although I'm not sure about that, who tried to use nothing but biblical terminology, didn't use terms for days of the week unless they appealed in, appeared in scripture. Um, this is actually a kind of a typical reaction that people in this period or overreaction that people in this period had. You, you can find Renaissance humanists, for example, who even in the church would not want to use any word that didn't appear in Cicero. Oh, yeah. Right. Um, and in some cases, <laughs> they wouldn't use words in a form that didn't appear in Cicero. In other oh, words, wow. if Cicero never used the word in the plural, they wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, you get these... With, now, that gets really bizarre when you're dealing with the church because what do you do with God, Jesus, things right. like that? Right. But um, but that the, the same sort of... Um, I would almost call it a kind of, of uh, unthinking fundamentalism of language uh, does show up periodically, but it's, it's really sort of a misguided understanding of, of both scripture. I'd love to know what and Wittgenstein thought of that anyway. We'll, yeah, do, right, a, we'll right. do a show on that one. Yeah. So <laughs> anyway, continuing, continuing with the idea of the church year, the other big season is, well, you get Epiphany then um, after, uh, after the Nativity which celebrates the arrival of the wise men, the Magi, and thus points to the spread of the gospel away from the Jewish world into the Gentile world. Next big season is Lent. Lent is a season of uh, reflection and repentance in preparation for what is sometimes mistakenly, I think, thought of as, as uh, several different days, but is really uh, intended to be a single compound holiday. Now, Glenn, a quick, quick question for a historian. Christianity at this time, as it's working out these events and the meaning of history, mm-hmm. were they concerned, like the modernist historian, about being exactly accurate in terms of what they saw as a kind of historical objectivity of time? Or were they setting the, 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 the sort of the first principles of time for which any genuine objectivity could be made sense of? What I mean is, for example, were they concerned about getting the Easter date right by the way we as a modern may do it? Or were they interested in it from a different set of sources and a different set of reasons? Uh, they were absolutely interested in getting the day right. But getting the day right doesn't necessarily mean, mean getting the date Right. It okay. has to be on a Sunday. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But you want to have the Sunday calculated as close to the proper day as possible. Okay. Let's just look at the date for Christmas. I think we may have talked about this once before. Yeah. A lot of people will tell you that the date for Christmas was set by uh, competition with the pagan holiday of Saturnalia. Yeah. Yeah. That idea first arose in the ninth century, mm-hmm. eighth or ninth century. Um, and by then, Christmas had been celebrated for over 500 years on December 25th. They'd actually forgotten the source. The source was actually Judaism. Yeah, tell that story again. Yeah, the, the Passover is celebrated on the 14th day of Nisan in the Jewish calendar, which is a lunar calendar. That means that's the day Jesus died. However, there's an idea within Judaism that important events tend to happen on the same date. 
Thus, the idea was that Jesus entered the world on 14th Nisan. However, in Judaism and early Christianity, the date you enter the world is the day you are conceived, not the day you are born. So, the question is, how do you calculate 14th Nisan? Most people decided it was probably pretty close to March 25th, which then becomes the Feast of the Annunciation, and six months later gives you December 25th, Christmas. Excuse me, nine months later gives you December 25th, Christmas. You know, what's fun, what's fun about this is, of course, we just had a conversation with Rachel Fulton Brown about, mm-hmm. about Tolkien and, and how, you know, the day that Saran falls, Tolkien makes the explicit point, speaking of mm-hmm. March 25th. So, <laughs> so here we're talking about, you know, sort of Greco, you know, Roman, you know, sort of calendar imported into... Middle Earth. (laughs) Actually, Judaism imported into Roman solar calendar imported into Middle Earth. Right. You have to take extra step. But there was was an interest for the Christians who moved into the Hellenic and and, and the the pagan world to also find those parallels because of communicating. I mean, they were convinced that Christ is the fulfillment not just of Judaism, but the desire of the nations. Yeah, and the best so, of paganism. That's right. And so that's why you, everything from the pagan world was not thrown out right. because there were seen... I mean, I'll give you the representative example. I mean, uh, Yaroslav Pelikan puts it this way. He said, the fact that the New Testament, John's Gospel, starts in the beginning was a logos... Right. Not only ties you to Ruach of the Old Testament, but t- ties you to everything about the Logos right. in mm-hmm. Greco-Hellenic culture. Right. right. I've actually been working on my chapter in my book on Bombadil on Goldberry, and I've been getting into this because I think with the character of Goldberry, you have the redemption of a pagan notion of uh, the, you know sort of the water spirit. So I don't want to take us too far, uh, you know, a, a, a field from your conversation or your <laughs> subject, Glenn. But when you have all the water spirits uh, that you have sort of in European folklore are these very ambiguous and dangerous, you know, sort of beings, you, and, and then you encounter Goldberry. <laughs> like, you know, there's something about Goldberry that reminds me of these other stories, but there's something very different, too. What's the difference? Well, the difference is uh, Tom caught Goldberry and brought her home. Hmm. And that, it makes all the difference. Hmm. And uh, anyway, but if you want to learn more, buy my book on Tom <laughs> Bobbins. <laughs> when it comes out. <laughs> okay, now, okay, so... We left this off at Lent, a period of preparation for the celebration of Jesus' death and resurrection. And we've got the whole Holy Week and everything else. And then after that is Pentecost. Those are the main events in redemptive history. But it turns out that if you go to the church calendar, you will find quite a number of other holidays. Okay. So, for example... um, thinking about when this show is going to come out. Yeah, we'll be right after All Saints Day. Hmm. Yes, yes. Now, you call it All Saints Day, but for most of our listeners, the date that uh, will be important to them 
is another date related to that. Right, so. which is where I'm going. Okay. okay. <laughs> so there is actually a three-day holiday <laughs> in called um, All Hallows Tide mm. ah. that comes up in this period. It starts All Hallows, Hallow, Holy One, Saint. So right. All Saints Day is All Hallows Day. All Hallows right. Eve is the day that precedes it. Uh-huh. And the day that follows it is All Souls Day. Yep. So this is the day in which we commemorate all of the saints, frankly, the martyrs and so on, that don't have specific feast days. Right. The day after is the day we celebrate all the faithful departed. Right. We remember them. And the day before is the preparation day for for these celebrations, All Hallows' Eve, which, of course, we know as Halloween. Halloween. Mm. That's right. So Halloween is... In Christian tradition, a holy day, part of All Hallows' Tide, historically. Yep. And it is, in fact, sort of connected to the dead, hmm. but it's connected to the dead in the sense of the saints and the faithful departed. Right. Now, well, Glenn yeah, has just prompted Glenn. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it also happens to be the day that um, Martin Luther tacked up the 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg, or as one student memorably put it, he nailed 95 theocrats to the door. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought he also ordained the Harvest Festival that evening. <laughs> yeah, so, so now the interesting thing, I suspect that the reason why that was picked for this, and this is really where I wanted yeah, to go yeah. with this, is to yeah. get to this point. I think the reason why it was picked for this is that is also basically right between... In the old calendar, the way they used to calculate things, it's right between the beginning of um, fall and the beginning of winter. Right, right. So, in particularly in in the Celtic world, they had this idea of in between times. Yeah, there are times when the the space between this world and the other world gets thin. Okay. So dawn, dusk, yeah, right, right. But also these in-between times, midway between solstices and equinoxes. Okay. And we aren't exactly there, but we're pretty close to it. Right, mm-hmm. right. With that, and so I have a feeling that it was connected to that, and the fact that we're moving into the winter, uh, the season in which the Earth dies. Yeah that this is part of the reason why I haven't been able to trace why that date, but I suspect it's connected into this. And one of the, this brings in, you know, the, the fact that you just noted the day the earth dies, and you know, it's seasonal. You know, there are, you know, when we think about seasons today, we don't have a sense of their uh, significance related to survival. Mm-hmm. We just think, oh, wow, the leaves are, tra- are changing, or hmm. oh, wow, it's going to snow now, or something like that. We're in a different season. But for our ancestors, the calendar was tied into the sort of the the agricultural year. That's right. So uh, you're, you know, the the, the keeping of time on the calendar and the the pattern, at least in the northern hemisphere, of spring and, you know, summer and harvest 
uh, was really huge, and there was gratitude that should be offered up when the harvest is received, you know, but there's also something that should be done when the harvest is, or when the, the, the grain is being sown in hope. You know, all these different things. Yeah, what you are get is that now. created, the, the created, Genesis created order of time and the measuring of time, the day, the night, the evening, the, the cycle, the, the agricultural cycle, right. are all tied also to the redemptive cycle. And that's, that's the fascinating thing. And so Christ is a fulfillment of all this. And this is what Lewis and other figures said also Christ is the fulfillment of the corn king, if you will. Right, right. It, it's it's, it's that, that, that what Genesis gives us in, in terms of a, a full revelation of the created order and its meaning and significance. There were hints of it, though fallen and distorted and tied to idols, all over the world that still had the desire of the nations, even it suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. Christ comes in and blows a light into all of that, and you see all those aspects that were, were gifts to everyone about the created order that were fulfilled in Christ. And yet you see the church also trying to wean the pagan culture away from those aspects that were tied to Zeus or whatever else and reorient those understandings to to Christ. Well, let's let's connect this to something else then, as long as you've gone in that direction. Um, We did a show a couple months back where I was talking about the universe as being sacramental. Yeah, in right. the sense that it points beyond itself to deeper spiritual realities. Have you ever considered the fact that your day is your life in miniature? Right, you, right. You come to consciousness, you, you are born, you live your life, you get older, you get tired, you die. That's right. Yeah. And right. so sleep, yeah. as a metaphor of death, yeah. it's more than simply a metaphor. Yeah, you know, yeah. in, in, it is a sacramental understanding of it. Hmm. But you go to sleep knowing you'll wake up in the morning. And that's, that's the Christian hope. Yeah. Or the year goes through the same thing. Our years do the same thing. Right. We, get, we get a birth in spring. Yeah. We go through maturity. We then get into the period of decay, old age during the fall, sure. and yeah. then the year dies. Yeah, right. So even our time is sacramental. Which, again, is one of the reasons why the church year ends up being so important. The liturgical cycle reminds us of the great, again, the great works of redemption. But along with that, it also points us to the significance of, of time, the meaning of time, the meaning of our days, the meaning of our years. You know, the reason I brought up before the significance of the, of the agricultural year is because we don't, you know, most of us aren't farmers anymore. I mean, I, what is the pop percentage of the population involved in agricultural work? It's, it's under like 5%. Yeah. Just a tiny. But it used to be like 90%. Yeah. So I think that one of the reasons why we've lost uh, touch with the significance of this is that. Another reason, maybe when we get to this whole matter of, the, of a day, maybe the clock also has a role in, in how that's, you know, been lost. You know, the, you know because throughout Scripture... You know, like when Jesus is about to raise Lazarus, he says he's fallen asleep, mm-hmm. right? And but even then, they they didn't get the point. <laughs> yeah. And then he, they say, well, if he's fallen asleep, he's going to get better. And they say, well, no. I mean, I was I was just speaking, you know, mm-hmm. you know, right. figuratively. He's yeah. dead. He's dead. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but even Jesus used an analogy mm-hmm. there. Right. So, 
Um, but I guess my, my, my larger point is, how do you stay in touch with this uh, when you don't have the necessity of staying, or sort of understanding it? You know? Well, and, and because of the <laughs> clock, I get up when it's dark. Right. Yeah. I go to bed when it's dark. Right. Yeah. right. The day means nothing to right. me in terms right. of my schedule. Have you ever considered the fact that human beings are the only animals that go to sleep when they're not tired and wake up when they are? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> At least old humans. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah that, that's a very good point. Yeah. But, you know, so, so you're right. We we have lost sense of uh, we've lost the sense of the day. Yeah. We've lost the sense of the year. Mm-hmm. All of those things. And again, in, in a sense, I would suggest that we can use liturgical time, not just the big festivals, but even things like the All Hallows Tide. And there are many, many others. Michaelmas, Candlemas, all of these many yeah. other days. We, we can use those to help us uh, order our years in ways that we no longer do because of our modern technological world. I, I was actually fortunate to be on the on that calendar during my Oxford time. I was actually um, matriculated on from Michaelmas term. Okay. <laughs> and you actually, yeah, you had to. I had to learn it. I, I wasn't from tradition with that, and it was interesting because they only measured the the year through that calendar. They did not change. Do they and, still are they still like that? Yes. Yeah, yeah, they still. Well, that's one of the things, you know, about these things. And, and it ha- I think it speaks to their significance and their value. So, for example, if we can go to Europe and we can observe that, I mean, look at this place. It's just a wasteland spiritually. Yeah. And yet, yeah. we have these magnificent churches and we have these patterns of behavior. And Ascension Day is still a holiday in France. Yeah, so we have these things <laughs> that remind us. Now, you can, you, can, you, do, you can sort of, well you know, sort of dismiss all that and say, well, look how little that's made a difference. Well, really? I I think that what we have is we have kind of sort of, I guess, uh, encoded. Maybe that's a way you can relate to the modern world. We've encoded the calendar with a Christian story. We've encoded architecture with a Christian story. And someday, someone's going to wake up and say, what does all this mean? And it, it's interesting, uh, well, two points. Once I was, I, I was always, uh, t- took a step back when I first went to, to UK as a student, when they asked me my Christian name, I always thought yeah, that, yeah. Was, that was, That's uh, interesting. that was interesting. But um, uh, Hans Frey was a, a Yale theologian, very big on what came out as narrative theology. Yeah, I remember him. But yeah. one of the interesting things, whatever, whatever else he, he said, was that one of the things he was trying to recover is the fact that his, the sense of historical re- realism um, that the Bible gave, especially the you know, Protestant world in particular, but Christianity gave anyway, but Protestant brought to a height, um, is the way that is often assumed in the contemporary world in, in its realist understanding of history that didn't owe itself to anything other than Christianity. So some of what we get, not necessarily the historicism, but this notion of reality and history as interconnected was not something that we were given prior to given to the scripture. Right. And it, it is interesting that, that when we talk not only of the calendar and liturgical time and this, but, but the historical realism that, that Christianity brought to the world right. um, as, I guess, you know, exemplified most in its liturgical understanding of time and reality. 
Yeah, I guess another dimension of this that I'd like to think about is when we think about dominion, A.D., for example, Anno Domini, yeah. you know, uh, the calendar was a way, when we talk about the year of the Lord, of a, say, of a saying that, you know, the, the kind of the axis of time was the advent of Christ. Yeah. So before Christ, we have time going backwards. Yeah. After Christ, Anno Domini, now it's the year of the Lord we, going forward. Now, it's, it's, I think it's important to note <coughs> for some of our listeners that the Academy has rejected that now. Yep. Explicitly. So we have CE and BCE. BCE, yeah. Yeah, all that nonsense. Yeah, but uh, as a quick note there, for the longest time, regnal da- dates in annals and chronicles and things like that were done by regnal date. You know, in the first year of King Henry IV, right, and the right. first year, whatever. It wasn't until actually a bit later in the game that they came up with a common way of measuring time. And that in itself is theologically significant because what it is saying is that all of these rulers who rule, we don't date things by them. Right. They are under Christ and we date them by him. Well, and and I guess what I'm getting at here is the the idea that we can't, we got, we've got, you know, sort of this uh, extreme Puritanism, which is on the, on the same page with the postmodernists in the, in the academy, who both say that's since, you know, since we, we can't find any reason to justify saying Anno Domini. It's not in the Bible, for example. We've not been told in Scripture that we need to date our calendar in this way or, or sort of calculate time in this way. And the, you know, the, and the, it reminds me of something that Ken Meyer said, you know, the, the host of Mars Hill Audio, he said, I went one time to a church that was a very, very much in the Puritan tradition uh, during the Christmas season, and, and the pastor preached against Christmas trees. And I thought, you know, there's nothing about this sermon that, that these atheists that I used to interview in NPR wouldn't agree with. <laughs> well, yeah. I've got a whole shtick on Christmas trees, too, but we won't go there today. Um, the, the, the other interesting thing in this, to me, it seems to be, it seems, is um, Michaelmas term. Yeah. Michaelmas, for those of you who don't know, is the feast day of St. Michael the Archangel. And one of the things... Now, I can already tell a lot of you are getting hives. (laughs) Okay, because we... Why why would you have a feast day for St. Michael the Archangel? Why would you do that? I mean, he's not part of redemptive history exactly. He's mentioned in Scripture a few (laughs) times, but... Well, this goes back to another show we had a long time ago on the importance of angels. Right. Most evangelicals have no place in their theology for angels. The the only reason they think that there are angels is because they have to say that if they believe the Bible. Right, right. exactly. They don't actually do anything. Yeah. They're like like people who work for the town. You know, (laughs) (laughs) you you drive by and you got one guy with a shovel and the five guys watching. Right. And it's what angels do. Yeah. Says watch. So, so, well, actually, one of the classes of angels uh, going back to... First Enoch were the watchers. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So we've got it. Yeah, but <laughs> but you know, okay. Do we really need a feast day for Saint Michael the Archangel? No, probably not. But it serves a useful purpose. It reminds us of the reality 
of the angelic hosts. Right. It right. reminds us that they are ministering spirits sent to serve Christ's people. Yeah, and, and just what you stated, I believe is true, but for many people, they don't know what they do. Right. Well, and also what you get here, um, you know, in a way that is kind of very foreign to a certain kind of hermeneutic or reading rule that some of these, you know, sort of hyper historicist, if you will, um, don't appreciate. But you, you captured it. Is What you have here is a repetition of that no, biblical notion of memory and redemptive history. The, rem- the remembering of, the feast days of, are tied to that com- common repetition in memory of the significance of this figure in redemptive history and the significance for our time of this particular person. I mean, maybe the closest thing for some people would be like they, they read a devotional each day and whatever that devotion teaches them is you remembering biblical history in its significance for your day. Well, these types of things tied to a, a liturgical calendar and, and a richer web of meaning um, were doing that. I mean, they were carrying out our contemplation of particular aspects of biblical reality um, and you, you remember different, different aspects and, and figures of that history. Um, I, I mean, I even think that, you know, in a broader way is what Saint Days were. It wasn't all about just a bunch of people who, who you know, people lifted and elevated to the place of Christ <laughs> and committed a bunch of idols. No, it was a memory of the significance of these people's faith for our faith now. And just as another quick note, the, a feast day is the day on which the saint died, yeah, not the day they were born. Yeah, that's interesting. The day, the day that they were, to use the phrase from the Salvation Army, promoted to glory. Glory. Yeah. Well, this is rich stuff, and we should probably wrap things up. Um, it's impossible to know how long we've gone because we had that glitch. You know, I've got, I've got, you know, I can't remember where we were in terms of the t- the counter. The time, time, memory. <laughs> you know. Speaking of this, exactly. But anyway, uh, anything you want to say as we wrap up time? No, it'd be great to uh, visit this again, especially during the medieval period, where the the way in which uh, memory and location and and the cathedral were right. very interrelated. In the way in which people would would actually memorize uh, scripture and names and dates and stories in relationship to the different rooms within the cathedral, um, that'd be an interesting topic because I think it was very yeah. tied to that ancient way of, of, yeah, of knowing the, the concept of the memory palace and things like yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Anything else, Glenn? You want to say? Um, yeah, um, I, I guess th- what sort of inspired this was a combination of things. Uh, first of all, the absolute paranoia people have about All Hallows' Eve. Right, right. Um, <laughs> it, 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 are there pagan roots? Possibly. Yeah. Right. But the fact of the matter is, we don't, as I mentioned earlier, we really don't know what the Druids believed. <laughs> right, right. So, so Samhain, the, the, the holiday that comes around this time of year, yeah, there are probably some traditions that connect into it, but that doesn't mean it's actually pagan in origin. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And then one, the other point is, once again, for you Reformed guys, 
those of you who are really big on the regulative principle, lighten up. Jesus didn't follow it. <laughs> wow. Anyway, <laughs> there are people lying on the carpet right now, just sort of in a daze. Yeah, I think I just lost there, half there, my there, Facebook there friends. Is, there, there is that thing, as was his custom. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. But uh, anyway, well, we appreciate your interest in the Theology Podcast, and after today, we hope you come back. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, but uh, seriously, we do appreciate your interest in everything we do. We are working on the website uh, for the the show, and progress is being made, and we're hoping that we'll have uh, an announcement real soon about that. But that, I think, is all we have to say right now. It's about time to get going. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.